I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and today's episode is all about what shed antlers teach us about deer. This is probably going to sound like total BS, my friends, but stick with me. On my journey as a deer hunter, I spent a lot of years not really paying attention to what was happening around me. Even as a youngster, I scouted a lot and I hunted every second I could. And I still mostly zoned out when Mother Nature tried to give me a helpful hint or three of them. As I've gotten older, I've realized that just about every deer sighting and every piece of deer sign, and yes, every shed antler has something to teach us. That last one is what this episode is all about, and I urge you to listen to it even if you're not a diehard shed hunter. In the spring of 2013, I set out in the dark with my wife's cousin in tow. Our destination was a turkey blind I had set up in the back corner of a picked cornfield. The cousin had expressed interest in turkey hunting the previous year, probably during like a holiday get-together or something. I don't really remember. She wasn't really the kind of first-timer I usually take out, considering she is a few years older than me and had never hunted anything before. She also has a son who has mitochondrial disease, which means that almost the entirety of her life is dedicated to his care. And it's not an easy life, my friends. In fact, her son is who I think about when some grown adult man sends me an email or social media DM about how offended by something he is that I said on a podcast or I wrote in an article. It makes me think about how lucky most of us are where we have the luxury of, of letting the little things bother us when there are people out there really struggling to get through the day, people who are dealing with real problems. Anyway, that's a sidebar. Becky and I set up in the dark that April morning, and while a few birds gobbled, it was just kind of a slow, cloudy, drizzly morning, and we only saw one hen. At mid-morning, I made the call to relocate to a different blind, 
one that is situated in the best strutting zone I've ever found in a lifetime of turkey hunting. It's just a phenomenal midday spot. And as we lugged decoys and chairs and gear along the field edge, I picked up a small two-point shed antler. It was cool, but it didn't really mean much. After we looked at it and checked it out a little bit, we cut across an alfalfa field that was just released from a lit of snow a few weeks prior. That's when I spotted a much more impressive set of tines sticking out of the alfalfa. And then I saw another. In total, Becky and I picked up nine sheds, including a couple of giants, in an area the size of maybe two acres. It was just a low depression in the field, meaning the bucks could feed there and not be harassed by anyone driving by on a nearby county road. It also made me realize that the buck crop on that farm was a hell of a lot better than I thought it was. Now, I'm not done, though, because that one in a million find of more antlers in 20 minutes than I usually scoop up in an entire winter, it got me back out there to scout more than I ever had. I wanted to know why those bucks were there and why they were there in such a high concentration. It honestly changed not only how I look at the farm, which I still hunt, but how I think about it and how there's so much happening in the deer world that I don't understand. That day was amazing, and it only got better when we made contact with a suicidal two-year-old who was on the prowl at noon and who took a face full of fours at 15 yards, making Becky's season short and very, very sweet. And while I love taking new hunters on their first successful hunts, I love getting deer lessons as well. Shed antlers, almost every one of them, do that for you if you know how to read them. But not all shed antler lessons are created equal. Take a big four-point side you find in a pick cornfield on your private lease. Sure, there's something to be had there, but the lesson isn't going to run too deep. For starters, you probably knew that deer like to eat corn, especially in the winter, and that bucks might spend all night long from December to April in a specific field nosing their way across it while vacuuming up every kernel of waste grain they come across. That's kind of like, I don't know, putting a trail camera on the edge of a soybean field in the summer. While the picks might be cool and exciting, it probably doesn't teach you much about overall deer behavior. That winter buck dropping his headgear in the corn, he's telling you mostly what you already know, but that's okay. It's a hell of a lot better than not finding a shed. Plus, he's also telling you that up until the moment half of his rack broke free and fell to the ground, he made it. He survived you and your hunting buddies. He survived the neighbors who are in the if it's brown, it's down category and who put on an elaborate deer drive on their farm every day of the gun season. He survived the Sunday morning church traffic on the road that borders your property. The constant stream of grain trucks in the fall hauling the harvest to the river or the co-op in the nearest town. He survived the unscrupulous assholes who have no qualms about driving around at two in the morning with some bush lattes on their seat and a spotlight and a suppressed firearm laid over their lap. He survived EHD, CWD, coyotes, and whatever else conspires to kill deer on a daily basis. So in that way, that antler is proof of more than life. It's proof that when you think they must all be dead because it feels that way, they aren't. They never are. In fact, I read something on a hunting forum the other day where a poster said, no one could come to his state and kill anything bigger than a two and a half year old because bucks never make it past that age in his state. Now, I don't know this dude, but I'll bet you he doesn't shed hunt very hard. 
Because if he did, he'd eventually find proof that he's wrong. Probably the same way if he just summer scouted more or ran trail cameras more, he'd have to encounter the fact that he's making up things about the age of the bucks in his state. But that's not something a lot of us want to find out. But it could be out there, laying in the grass or under the snow waiting for a March thaw. Now take that same hypothetical four-point side, move it 100 yards to a fence line. The spot where the top strand of barbed wire droops lower than any of the other sections, drop it there. What do we know now? Well, for starters, that leap across the fence probably jarred the antler loose. Oh, big deal, you might think. I would too, but there's more to it. Now he's telling you where he crossed to get into the food, which tells you to some extent where he probably came from. This may or may not be super valuable depending on when the antler dropped and to what extent the deer in your neighborhood yard up. If he came from 10 miles away to hole up with dozens of other deer in a river bottom filled with egg, that lesson really isn't worth that much. But if he's a resident and he didn't follow a centuries-old migration path to get to an advantageous chunk of real estate to ride out the winter months, uh, now you're on to something. Certainly that buck could have crossed that fence anywhere, because after all, they are pretty good jumpers. But he chose that spot, because it's easier, and very likely it's along his chosen travel route, or one of his chosen travel routes, even if he had to loop a little bit out of his way to get to that easy crossing. It's valuable intel. You knew where he was going to eat at this time of year, but did you know exactly how he'd get there? Better yet, is that something he'd do during the hunting season? Deer travel routes are often just that, deer travel routes. They may be totally independent of season or weather, and they are often the linchpin that holds your whole hunting plan together. So is that antler at that crossing teaching you something about that? If so, pay attention. Now take that same antler, that hypothetical antler we've got, move it 200 yards into the best cover off of the food. That might be along a trail, or it might be smack dab in the middle of a bed. It might just seem to be laying in the middle of the woods, not related to any type of sign. It might mean that the buck staged there in the waning minutes of daylight as another winter night settled over the land. You think that's not valuable? It certainly is, my friends. I've had the good fortune to spend a lot of winter afternoons sitting in various ground blinds while trying to photograph deer. It's a hobby of mine. I just absolutely love it. What I've watched happen over and over and over again is what we all kind of understand, but often don't witness firsthand a whole lot. And that is the does coming out to feed first and the bucks hanging back in the cover. We know this happens because of the order they show up on our cameras or the order in which we see them when we are hunting in the fall. But it's not always easy to witness, so we have to fill in the blanks. With a camera on a tripod and the open viewing of winter woods, you can often watch the deer approach the food and see how the big bucks, even when their antlers are long gone, stage. Even a month or two beyond when they were last hunted by humans, those bucks will stage. They set up to watch the first arrivals in the food to see if they set off any alarm. They use the wind, they use their ears, and they definitely use their eyes. You'll see them mill around, nibble on some brows, and they just kind of wait. They're just kind of killing time. Sometimes when they do that, their antlers fall off. Now, if you find an antler in that cover, 
you might be onto something that bucks do not only in the winter, but will do all fall, whether you can see it in person or not. That's not nothing. And it means there's a lot more to that antler find than just having something cool to put in your man cave or your she shed. Now, of course, you might find an antler in a lone patch, a willow brush, or maybe sumac or something, which might seem kind of out of place or random. One of my daughters found a really big shed last spring in just such a spot near my house in central Minnesota. It was close to a highway, close to a lot of people activity, and as far as he could get from the biggest concentration of hunters on that specific property. That dude had it figured out, and I'd have never known about it until my nine-year-old's eyes bugged out of her head at the sight of that big antler laying there. In fact, even though I can only doe hunt that farm, I sat there one night in October this past season just to see, and I saw several deer, but the biggest buck, a really solid eight-pointer, but not the previous owner of that shed, got up out of that same little patch and worked his way through a cattail slough. This lesson, and it's an important one, is that big bucks use terrain in a specific way. They use cover in a certain way. If you find a good shed somewhere, that buck is shouting something at you about where he likes to be. And your job is to figure out why. It's also your job to try to suss out who else might use that spot and how it can be advantageous to you as a hunter for the rest of your life in the woods. Now, I know you're thinking, well, this is all well and good if you have, I don't know, a spot to shed hunt that you also hunt. But what if you don't? What if you only hunt 20 acres of ground and you shed hunt a bunch of parks in your county? I'd say two things to that. First, why are you limiting yourself to that small parcel and only one of them? Find more ground to hunt. Private, public, it doesn't matter. Open up your aperture a little bit. And secondly, those antlers on the ground that you can't hunt can still tell you plenty. For starters, the same rules apply as far as reading the situation and trying to hypothesize why the buck was there when he dropped and how he used the terrain around him. I'll give you a real-world example of this. I fully admit that I'm not a buck bed hunter. I'm slowly creeping in that direction, or at least trying to figure out how buck beds can make me a better hunter in a variety of situations, but it's just not my style like it is for a lot of folks out there. Now, I'm still very interested in buck beds. And probably 10 years ago, I was shed hunting a piece of ground that I can't hunt. As I'll get into in the next episode in much greater detail, I was just trying to follow a new route through that ground so that I wasn't looking at the same trails as I already had on earlier shed hunts. This took me up a hillside that was covered in wrist-thick saplings and randomly led me to a little bench. And on that bench was a perfect oval in the grass. And in that oval was my first match set. Even though the buck wasn't a giant and it wasn't on land that I'd ever actually get to bow hunt, that lesson stuck with me. As I admired those antlers, I looked around. The bed was positioned in such a way that undetected approach was nearly impossible. With the right wind, a buck bedded right there had all of the advantages and multiple escape routes. It was no accident that a buck was using that spot to bed. Years later, I almost caught up to a giant on public land in northern Wisconsin, in land that couldn't have looked more different. But that 160 inches bed that I found when I went back there and scouted was almost a carbon copy of the one I found while shed hunting 
that had two perfectly placed antlers in it 200 miles away. Now, if you think back to last week and about 37 other episodes of this show, I've preached the message of time in the woods being one of the biggest, if not the biggest, contributors to success on pressured deer. I cannot stress this enough. And yes, if you're paying attention, this goes for shed hunting too. Get out there and cover ground, whether you think you'll find an antler or not. If you don't, you still got some exercise and you still spent time in the woods looking around, following your instincts, and not sitting at home watching TV or mindlessly scrolling through social media posts. If you do find an antler, and you will if you shed hunt enough, then you've got a gift. Not only in its physical form, but in the sense that the antler got there by one way and one way only. A buck walked to that very spot and dropped it. Why he went there, what he was doing there, and what it all means is up to you to figure out. But what you come up with, not only for that individual deer, but what it means to the deer you'll encounter in the next three decades, matters to you as a hunter. That's one of the main reasons I shed hunt a lot. On ground that I can hunt and on ground that I'll never hunt. It's also one of the reasons why I'm always on the lookout for shed antlers, even if my goal is just a winter scout. Or maybe, hell, I'm rolling through a new state with a non-resident turkey tag in my pocket. Antlers teach us many things. And they do help us actually kill deer. In the next episode of this podcast, that is the path I plan to take. Because while it hasn't happened a ton of times in my life, there have been a few times where I found an antler in a specific spot, which has led me to scout and hunt that specific spot. And a few times, doing that has put big public land bucks on my wall, which tells me all I need to know about the value of shed antlers. So if you want to use sheds to become a better hunter, be sure to tune in next week. That's it for this show, my whitetail-loving brothers and sisters. I'm Tony Peterson, and this has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you want more whitetail advice, head on over to TheMeatEater.com slash Wired and check out our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel as well. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.